If you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Andrew, and I am one of the leaders here, uh, part of West Village Church. Uh, it is my distinct privilege today to be able to teach you from the Bible, which we believe is not just some ancient book, but is actually God's direct word to us, telling us who he is, what he has done, and in light of that, who we are and how we ought to live. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have a couple uh, options for you. We have some over here at the front, and as Cam mentioned, for those of us who are uh, distractible. You can download one on your phone. Um, quite easy to do that. But uh, if you are new with us, I do want to, again, welcome you and let you know a little bit of where we've been journeying. So the Bible is a large book made of 66 distinct books. And within that, there are four books in particular that deal with the life, teachings, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we have been walking through one of them called the book of Matthew. And, uh, and it's been a really encouraging journey, uh, but it's been a long journey. We are on chapter 6 today, and there are 28 chapters, and we started in March of last year. So uh, that can kind of tell you we're a slow-progress kind of church. But, uh, but if you haven't been journeying with us through that entire time, I do want to encourage you to take a look at our website. All, all our sermons are posted there, where you can look up West Village Church on like iTunes podcasts or something like that, and just look through it, because we've been having a chance to journey and grow together as a church. And as we continue to go, we're, we're learning things that we don't always have a chance to rehash every week. So uh, I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, the section of scripture that we're uh, in currently is called, or commonly called, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what's been happening is Jesus has been going around and telling people this incredible message that you need to repent or switch your allegiance because God's kingdom is now present and in-breaking in your reality. Allegiance is who you're allied with. So who do you say you're with? So I would say, you know, I'm allied to my wife. I'm with Shannon. Does that help? Cool. <laughs> so uh, we have this incredible message that Jesus has been preaching, and, and he's telling people, uh, my kingdom's here. It's time to get on, on my team. And, and so what's happened is Jesus gathers these followers together and he brings them to the top of this mountain and he starts to teach them. And we've been calling this the constitution of the kingdom. Essentially, now that you have said, yes, I want to be part of your kingdom, this is how your lives should actually look. And we've continually noted that, uh, that this particular section of scripture is oftentimes the most quoted yet least obeyed. Most quoted because it really does sound so good. And you can imagine it emblazoned on bumper stickers. Blessed are the peacemakers with one of those hippie peace symbols on it. Or on the top of a mug, love your enemies, especially when they try and steal your coffee or something like that, right? <laughs> that comes from personal experience with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the reality. When we start to unpack what's, what's actually being said by Jesus, we recognize that his message is one that actually confronts the way that our world functions. It confronts the way that we are taught to understand the way that the world works. And, uh, and as we read through it, we start to see that he is peeling back the layers of our lives and looking at our hearts and I think we're going to continually see that as he looks at our hearts, he's going to reveal our desperate need for a Savior. At the same time, we have noted that Jesus' teachings are not so much about what we do, but more about who we are. 
the most outwardly religious people in Jesus' days uh, were called the Pharisees and the scribes. The scribes were essentially experts on the religious law. They were like the pastors or the theologians of today, the, the professors, the ones who spent their lives dedicated to learning this book and teaching it to others. And the Pharisees were sort of the practitioners, those who went around. And, and, and everyone in that era looked around and said, these are the people that we should aspire to. These are the people who get it. And yeah, if we, we look a little bit earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus then goes on, and this is what we've been preaching through the last little bit in the book of Matthew. He uses six examples, six, six, <laughs> six examples from the, uh, the, the law. And he actually shows how the religious leaders of the day had distorted the meaning from God's original intent and how the people of the day had fully bought into that. And he strips back the layers and shows that a much deeper heart transformation is needed than simply outward adherence to a set of principles. So uh, we're going to transition today. Uh, we've kind of finished that section, and, and Jesus is actually going to take a look now at some common uh, pious practices. And so piety is a word that kind of means like religious adherence or like good deeds. And so he's going he's gonna to look at good deeds, and I think as we continue to unpack this together, we're going to see that even in our good deeds, there is a, a place for growth. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting with verse 1 here. So Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. At the end of the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to his disciples, Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be godly, be like God. When you think about godliness, what comes to mind for you? Maybe if you've kind of grown up in sort of a kind of standard conservative Christian culture, you're like, yeah, it's, it's probably like things like, you know, not watching sketchy movies that have like a gross amount of nudity in them or swearing a lot. Um, maybe it's reading your Bible every day. Maybe it's, uh, you know, serving in your church family. Maybe your picture of godliness is a little bit more tangible, a little bit more hands-on, a little bit more earthy. And so your picture is uh, serving your community, meeting the needs of the disenfranchised, the poor and the needy among you. Maybe your picture is more about ecological justice. And so you think, man, I got to figure out how I can fight to care for the environment. Or maybe it's a little bit more on the social justice spectrum. You think, who are those people who are the classically or traditionally marginalized in our society how can we fight to help them? And these are all kind of pictures that we might have of what righteousness looks like. Whatever your righteous acts are, however, Jesus' words are a cutting reminder that even our good deeds can actually be little acts of rebellion against God. And when that happens, Jesus says that we will forfeit the reward that we have from our Father in heaven. I think it's really important for us to take a step back and unpack a little bit of what Jesus is challenging us and a little bit of why. Why do you think it is that Jesus says doing your deeds in front of other people is a bad thing? Realistically, like, 
the deeds are still being done, good things are still happening, why would that be wrong? Why would Jesus challenge that? We've been quoting him a lot, but uh, pastor and author Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, the ultimate choice is actually between pleasing self and pleasing God. And that is where the subtlety of the matter comes in. Ultimately, our only reason for pleasing the men around us is that we may please ourselves. You see, in that moment, when I desire praise from other people, when I'm trying to please men, I'm doing that to make myself look good, to make myself feel good. And in fact, in that moment, I'm actually asking them to do something to me, to lift me up, to, in a sense, worship me. And I'm putting myself forward as their savior. It's like a petulant child who rather than serving out of a deep love for his father is going around saying, look at me, I'm better than my dad ever was. And Jesus goes on in this passage and he breaks down what he's meaning into three specific examples. And we're going to look at two of those today. So starting in chapter six, verse two, Jesus says, thus went before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. A couple of things I want to note before I dive into this is, Each of the examples Jesus gives is an example that he takes for granted that people will be doing. And so there's not a sense here that these are things that we shouldn't be doing. Jesus actually expects that people who are living in light with who God is would do these things. But he's contrasting a little bit of what's going on in the heart. Now, this this first example is really interesting because we have no historical evidence that anyone ever went around and blew trumpets. Like, that's just kind of an absurd picture. Can you imagine someone walking down the street with their checkbook out and someone running before them like, hear he, hear he, so-and-so is coming to West Village and they're going to the offering dish and they're going to drop their check and like, okay, that's that's probably a little bit hyperbolic. And and that's actually Jesus' point. But... But you can imagine with me the type of people he's talking about, right? These are the the righteous people who want everyone to kind of know how good they are. And so there's a bit of a spectacle that comes here. And maybe in our contemporary context, you can imagine this. This is, the, this is a person who goes on that trip to some third world country, and they cannot stop posting all these amazing pictures holding little orphans. Hashtag blessed. These are the people who go down at Christmas time and serve in the local food bank and cannot stop telling everyone how good a deed that it was. Hashtag love like Jesus. These are the people, probably no one here, but these are the people who go and give that money to the the, the, uh, hospital to build that new wing. Hashtag put my name on it. Sorry. (laughs) Trying to relate to like the students. So I apologize for you guys who are like, I don't know what a hashtag is. (laughs) It's a pound sign. I'll talk to you about it after, Dave. (laughs) And Jesus calls these people hypocrites. Now, what's so interesting about this word hypocrite is that traditionally, the the Greek term that gets translated today is hypocrite, uh, which sounds very similar, 
is, uh, is actually a, a theatrical term. It was meant to describe actors, someone who was pretending to be something that they were not. But by Jesus' time, this term had kind of changed a little bit. And what's so sad about what Jesus is saying here is, is that these people really believed that what they were doing was the right thing. They really believed that their motives were pure. They had, in a sense, completely and utterly self-deceived uh, themselves. They thought they were killing it when, in fact, they had utterly failed to miss the point of why they were doing these things in the first place. It might be really easy for us to, to judge the scribes and the Pharisees, like, how did you guys not get this? You had the Son of God literally right in front of you, showing you what God is like. How did you miss what was going on, but as I read through this passage and I start to reflect on my own life, and even today as I'm sitting here preparing, I know in my head and in my heart that my motives have not always been pure. How often have I preached a sermon and really in the back of my mind, my concern is more of like, how will I impact people rather than how will God receive glory? Or how many times have I shared stories about how great our community group is, not because I want God to sound like he's doing a great work in our community, but because I want other people to be like, oh, Andrew, you're a community group expert. You should come and teach us how to do our community group better. By the way, I'm not a community group expert. And if you talk to any community group leader, they will probably also tell you they are not community group experts. It is hard because people are hard. <laughs> no offense, community group. <laughs> The funny thing is, is, and the ironic thing is, is that pastors are sometimes the worst at this. I've gone to so many conferences and, and teaching sessions and, you know, cadres and whatever fancy gathering word that we have that all means the same thing. And you see this sort of like uh, comparison, this contest that comes. So you go and talk to another pastor. Oh, how are things going good? Oh, how big is your church? Oh, how many people uh, have you seen come to faith? How many baptisms have you had? And there's, there's sort of like this, this, this unholy contest that's going on as if we as pastors are the people who are responsible for the work that God is doing. Maybe we're just a whole lot of broken people, but I suspect that if each of you is being honest with yourself, you've been here too. Maybe for you it's a little more subtle. It's that Instagram picture in the morning with your Bible and your coffee, just so everyone knows that you do your devos every day. These hypocrites were looking to be praised by men. That's what it, Jesus says here. That word praised actually is a Greek word, uh, and that, that Greek word is doxadzo. Um, yeah, apologize. I'm nerding out a little bit here when I go into the Greek, but... Uh, I think it is actually interesting because uh, Jesus actually uses this word just a, a few verses before this. So if you have your Bibles, you can jump back a little bit to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, In that same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory. That word again there is translated give glory, but it's that same word, doxadzo, to your Father who is in heaven. You see, the purpose of our good deeds is spelled out right here. We are to do things that give 
glory to God. And in essence, when we try and take that glory for ourselves, we're actually robbing God of his rightful due. And I just want to think about this for a second. How absurd is that? I mean, God created the world with a word. He sculpted humanity from the dust. He created you, sculpted you together, knit you together in your mother's womb. And yet, in these moments, we spit in his face and say, no, I want to be known as if I am someone and I have done something and in the midst of this brokenness, this complete and utter rebellion, that God, who could wipe us out with a snap of his fingers, sends his son to the cross to die for us. Why? Because he desires deep relationship with us. And yet here we are still posturing, still pretending like we have something to offer. And here's the sad reality. Jesus tells us if we want to be righteous, we can't even let our right hand know what our left is doing. Why? Because even when there's no one else around in our innermost places, we still have this proclivity to want to lift ourselves No one might ever really recognize how many times you have brought that awesome dish to community group when everyone else is kind of sucking. No one might ever praise you for that time that you stepped up and met that need that no one else was doing anything about. Those are all really amazing, wonderful things. And those are things that can come from a right motive. But God knows your heart. He knows when it's not there. And he knows when all of this is just something to make you feel good about yourself and not something that's there to bring him glory. Jesus continues with a second example. Chapter 6, verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. For truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Have you ever been to a church gathering or some kind of religious space, and someone comes up to the front, and they pray this like really lengthy and eloquent and wordy prayer, and, uh, and you're just like, whoa, okay. Or perhaps this is maybe more of your experience uh, after the gathering, you might pop over to a restaurant, maybe go across the street to Original Joe's or something like that, and you have that person who insists on doing like the prayer before the meal, and it's super awkward because the wait staff come with the food and like, oh, we haven't prayed yet, and so you kind of make those people wait. 
these are, are people in Jesus' day who, uh, who want to be noticed for what they are doing. It was common practice in Jewish times to take three times a day to pray. And, and it seems that what was going on is that these people would be walking down the street and suddenly, oh, it's prayer time. And, you know, kind of do like the Tim Tebow pose and, you know, down there. So everyone can say, oh, man, what a spiritual guy this is. Or they were in their local synagogues, much like gathering here, probably a little bit more conversational. I don't know um, exactly, but it was similar. People gathering together once a week to talk about God. And, and someone gets invited to the front, and they're invited to pray, and, and they just go off. And, and you can tell that their biggest concern is how good they sound rather than actually who they're communicating with. Jesus is also critical of prayer that seems to stem from a root belief that we can somehow manipulate or trick God into doing what we want if we're just wordy or eloquent enough. There's uh, this essential idea that, that was around in Jesus' day by pagan cultures, cultures, polytheistic cultures, that you could somehow trick your God into doing what you wanted through using like magic babbling or uh, just being persistent enough. If I say the right words this many times, then something is going to change and this God is going to have to do what I want. There's actually a really interesting picture of this uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings. This uh, prophet is sent by God to the nation of Israel. They've been following this false god named Baal. And so God sends this prophet named Elijah to confront them and say, hey, this isn't a real god. I'm a real god. And so Elijah comes and, and he goes to the temple and there's these 400 prophets dedicated to telling people all about Baal. And in kind of like an epic showdown, Elijah goes to the top of this mountain. These 400 prophets are there and they decide that they're going to have this sort of spiritual competition. And so they each build an altar together. They each slaughter a bull and then they're supposed to each pray to their God. And the God that shows that he is pleased and that he accepts their sacrifice will send fire to consume it. Now, listen with me, if you will, how the prophets of Baal uh, interact here. So it says in verse 26, And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So, I mean, this is like a few hours at least, probably four or five hours, saying, O Baal, answer us. And there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. I love this. Listen, listen to what Elijah says. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing. It's a picture of this god kind of sitting in the mirror looking at himself, thinking about all the things he has done. Or perhaps he is relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And listen how they respond. They cried aloud and started to cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as, midnight, as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered them. No one paid attention. What a weird kind of 
image. These, these guys are so convinced that they can trick their God in doing it. They figure, like, I'm just going to cut myself so like a shark in the water, when he senses that blood, maybe he will come out and answer me. It's a, a comical image, and yet, I think if we're really being honest with ourselves, each of us has probably had those moments where we have prayed simply because we think by praying God has to answer us. We may not cut ourselves or dance around, but we have this transactional type of relationship with God where we think, I have done my part, now you have to do yours. But in Jesus' kingdom, he says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to try and trick and manipulate God. He is not some reluctant child that is so easily switches moods. Jesus actually describes him as a loving father who comes to us in those secret places of our hearts, who knows what we need before we even ask him. We'll talk about it after, Dave. I want to take a a moment here to note that that there's something that Jesus is not saying. First of all, if we look at the the entire corpus of Scripture, we know that Jesus is actually not saying that it's wrong to pray in public. In fact, the very next verse, verse 9, Jesus starts to teach his, his disciples a public prayer, something that they recite together. He's not saying it's wrong to pray in front of other people. He's not saying it's wrong to pray continuously. The Apostle Paul tells the church that they should pray without ceasing. Jesus tells a story in Luke about a widow who persistently asks a judge as a, as a model for how we are to continually pursue asking God things. What he is critiquing is two wrongful heart motivations. And the first is a a motivation that sees prayer as a way to lift ourselves up, to make ourselves look great. And the second is prayer as a means of trying to manipulate God to do what we want. Here's the thing. I can relate to both. There are lots of times when I've been praying in public with other people and the reality is, is that in my mind, all I'm really thinking about is what other people are praying so I can, so I can uh, kind of craft together that prayer that sounds theologically rich and hits all the buzzwords. And maybe I'm catching a few things that other people missed in the prayer time of requests. And the reality is, is that probably some of you have done that as well. And the other thing is, is I, I know that there are times when I pray simply because I believe that by praying, God needs to answer me. I've done my part, and now he is obligated to do his. Let me ask, has that ever been your experience? Is prayer actually not about God for you at times, but about what you can get from other people or about what you can get from God? And if the issue here is not so much about what we do, but about where our heart is at, I think it's fair to say that not only can praying be sinful, but actually not praying can be sinful as well. Let me ask you, if if you're someone who struggles to pray in public, why? Is it because you worry that you don't have the words that you might sound dumb, that you might not be eloquent enough? But Jesus says you don't 
have to be eloquent. This prayer isn't for the people around you. It's actually for your Father who knows your needs, who knows what you need to say more than you do. It's this beautiful picture, I think, for, for those of you who have little kids. I'm about to kind of enter the stage, but I've seen it with other people. Your kid comes up to you, and, and they don't really quite know how to communicate fully yet, and yet they're trying to, to tell you what they want. And in that moment, you're not like, oh, man, like, dude, you're two years old. You should know how to talk now. You should know how to speak better than that. No, you're like, man, yeah. You're my child, and I'm so thankful that you trust me, that you come to me, that you want relationship with me. What a beautiful picture of what God's like. We are kids who don't even really know what we want, and half the time we don't even know what to ask for. And God's not sitting there saying, get your words straight. He's saying, yeah, you're my kids. I know what you need. I'm stoked that you're coming to me. As we read through this text, and as I in particular have read through this text, I think my heart has been stripped bare before God. So much of what I thought were my good deeds turned out to be not so good after all. You know, I I can handle... You know, Matthew 5, I can handle going through all these things in the law that I don't match up to, but I thought I was doing okay in some areas. I mean, really, I get up at 6.30, I do my devos like most days, I, you know, faithfully tithe through our church, I, uh, you know, try and make great meals for community group. Heck, I try and preach great, theologically strong, gospel-centered sermons. But when I start to unpack all of those things, The reality is that each of those is tinged with a desire for my glory. I don't know what your list is, but I know you have one. I know you have those things in your life that you think, man, these are the areas that I am killing it at. And here's Jesus with that little scalpel. Peeling it back, something that seems so healthy on the surface is rotten in the core. And I look at this picture and I read what Jesus says, and he says, If if you want to enter my kingdom, then your righteousness must exceed out of the scribes and the Pharisees. The hypocrites. And this week, I realized that I am the hypocrite. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if this picture does not persuade us of our own utter sinfulness, of the hopelessness as well as our helplessness, if it does not make us see our need of the grace of God in the matter of salvation and the necessity of forgiveness, rebirth, and new nature, then I know of nothing that can ever persuade us of it. What he's saying here is if, 
if this picture of the fact that we can take a hard look at our good side, at the things that we do well, and not recognize even in that that we are broken, then nothing else can convince us of our need for Jesus. (laughs) And in the midst of even our good deeds, we see that we do indeed need a Savior. And we know we have one. And that's the beautiful reality of the Bible. It tells the story of Jesus. Jesus is the faithful son who came not to bring glory to himself, but to bring glory to his father, whose deeds were done out of a deep desire for obedience for God, to God. He says this explicitly in John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. Uh, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Even when Jesus was receiving glory, it was not for himself, but for the Father to receive glory. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The reason that Jesus' glory is so important is because there is a reward, and that reward is relationship with God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you. Um before the world existed. Jesus' work brought glory to God. His motive was to see God glorified. He was not content to leave us in this place of brokenness. And, And the really beautiful thing about Jesus is not only was he the perfect example of what we should be like, but he is actually the expression of what God is like because Jesus is the very expression of a God who loves us, of a father who would hold nothing back to pursue his kids. Jesus went to the cross for us. And the beautiful reality of that is because of Jesus' perfect life. Because of what he has done on our behalf, we are called sons and daughters of God. God is not just some abstract deity out there who we have to try and get his attention of. He is actually our heavenly father. I just want to challenge you here for a second. If if your greatest ideal or your greatest picture of a reward in this life is that you can leave a, a, a rich legacy of good deeds, you know, you're known as a good person and that you've lived a good life, I, I do want to challenge you to say, I think your imagination has not been stretched far enough. There's lots there that is good that's worth being celebrated, but there's far more when you get the opportunity to know the creator of the universe. It's hard to explain really, to someone who hasn't experienced it. But there is something so completely filling when you have that kind of relationship with God. I don't know how many of you have kind of uh, good relationships or bad relationships or more likely sort of mixed relationships with your fathers. 
but for, for many of us, there's something so, so sweet when your dad comes to you and says, I'm proud of you. It does something. And because of Jesus, because of his righteous life, we have a father who comes to us and in the secret places of our hearts, he says, I am proud of you. That's so beautiful. And when we start to internalize that reality, somehow those other people that we think will fill us up, that will make us happy, just don't seem quite as important anymore. And so we no longer need their attention or their approval. Now, before I finish off here, I do want to note that Jesus does actually say there are times when you need to take a step back. And here's the reality. If, if you're here today and, and you're still struggling to figure out that love of God, and probably most of us are, there are times when probably the best thing you to do for you to do is stop talking, unplug, stop sharing, stop telling other people about all the great things you've done, and lock yourself into some space where it's just you and God, and you can have a really open and honest conversation and ask him to reveal to you just what it means to be your loving father. As we close, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But in a moment, we're going to take communion together. Uh, the cracker that we're about to break is this really beautiful symbol. And it's a symbol of a God, of a father, who is willing to suffer for his children so that we might be in relationship with him. The grape juice or the, uh, or the wine is a symbol of, of a God who, whose blood was shed so that we could go with him into the secret places and we might know him as our father. As you prepare to take the symbolic act, I want to invite you to take a moment just to reflect on your heart. Perhaps like me today, as you've heard this text, the Spirit of God has spoken to you, and you recognize that there are some areas in your life that still need His hand at work in them because there's still places that you're looking for your glory that need to be for His glory. But I don't want you to despair in those moments. I want you to actually come freely and know that this is exactly why Jesus went to the cross. This is exactly why He had to die because we are imperfect we don't make the cut, yet he did. So come to the table, eat freely and drink freely, knowing that there is a God who held nothing back from you. And the reality is, is when we start to take our eyes off ourselves, when we don't allow our right hand to know what our left is doing, it's because our eyes are firmly fixed on what God has done. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you that your spirit has spoken to us and reminded us that even in our righteousness, we're not so righteous after all. That we still need you. Father, I thank you that there are many ways that you're already working in our church family, that you have been at work through our hearts and that you are refining us. But I ask that you continue to do so, that those areas in our hearts where 
we still th are relying on our own strength and our own works, that you would continue to peel back those places, show us, and then bring our eyes back onto you. And Father, for, for people here today who, who haven't yet experienced what it's like to have a father who loves them, who says, I'm proud of you, I just ask that you would come and speak to them. They would know your deep love, that they would be able to enter freely into conversation with you, knowing that there is no question too dumb, no words too ineloquent for their dad.